incredible job, and we appreciate them very much. We don't talk about them enough. Uh, we got guys who show up early and show up Wednesday nights to practice, and guys who run sound and video and all that good stuff, and I appreciate them. Uh, listen, we are um, in the middle of our, our summer series, our Set Apart series. We've talked about this for the last few weeks. Um, and last week we kind of introduced a topic of really kind of furthering the thought of justification by faith, how we can do really nothing of our own to make ourselves right with God. It's only through what Jesus did on the cross. And, uh, and I left you last week with a thought of rejoicing in hope uh, and then rejoicing in our sufferings. And the whole idea of suffering produces, remember, it produces perseverance and character and hope. And there's this cyclical cycle that's good, uh, cyclical cycle of hope reproducing in our life over and over and over again. And so our only response to that is joy. And so when I started uh, praying through and, and trying to line out what was going to be this week, and I had two different passages, and I was just like, okay, God, I really want to preach both of these, and I don't know which one I need to do. And, and it was just almost like he said, do them both. And so we're going to have two different ones today. And I know you're really excited about that. You think that we're going to be in here forever. I promise we won't be here too long. But uh, I just could not walk away from both of these things. And, I, and, and I'm just going to tell you, it's, it's going to kind of hit you in the mouth both times today. Because it did me this past week as I was reading through it. I was like, God, I don't know if this is, uh, I don't know if this is okay to do two kind of heavy-hitting things like this. And he just said, just do it, and I'll work out the details. And so that's where we're going to be. Romans chapter 5. We're going to go from chapter 5 all the way into chapter 8. And you're thinking, we are going to be here forever, right? But I promise that we won't, okay? Follow along with me. We're going to hit these, and we're going to go quickly, but we're not going to go too fast. Romans chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 18. 5.18 says this, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Here Paul sets up the dichotomy of Adam and Jesus, okay? You may have heard it referred to as the first Adam and the second Adam, right? Because life comes all through Adam and then real life, spiritual life, all comes through Jesus. And he talks about um, really this one person brought death and the other person brought life. The result of one trespass. I think that's an incredible statement in, in Scripture because uh, when we think about this, we really begin to understand the reality of sin, Adam had one rule, one thou shall not, right? And, and what did he do? He broke it, right? He had this one thing that he was not supposed to do. If we think about it, we think about how he was living in the most perfect environment ever. He had face-to-face -face communication and communion with God. He, there was no death. There was no taxes. There was no pain. Listen, there was no fig leaves. You know what I'm saying? Like this was the perfect environment. And he had one rule, and he broke it. Don't eat of this tree. And it doesn't say how long it took him, but he broke it. We think this is easy. Like if I were Adam... I would flourish in this environment. You give me a perfect environment, no really hard labor. You give me the perfect wife and the perfect circumstances, the perfect everything, and all I got to do is tend to a garden. God, I will never even touch. I won't even look at that tree, right? 
We think, this, how easy? How could he mess this whole thing up? But what it really does is it, it teaches us about our own sin nature. It tells us a lot about ourselves and how we are innately drawn to things that are opposed to God. It speaks to the eternal condition of our soul and how we are unable to do right on our own. You see the cause and effect here. Condemnation by one man, righteousness by the other. Because of our sin nature, because of rebellion that lives in our hearts, we are condemned to death. But because of one act of righteousness brings life to all men. Because Adam was deceived by the serpent, because he acted in disobedience to God, sin entered the world. But because of Jesus and his obedience, life entered. Philippians chapter 2 says it like this, talking about Jesus. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This idea of being obedient to death, this very nature of Christ. And Paul says back here in Romans that, that this obedience is what brings life to all men because God gave Adam one rule and Adam broke it. Everything went down. Everything went down. And because Jesus comes along and he lived a life that was fully obedient to God. Life comes through him. Look at chapter 5 verse 20. The law was added so that trespasses might increase. But where sin increased Grace increased all the more. You should underline that in your Bible. So that, just as sin reigned in death, also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's saying, look, the law points out our sin. It, and it says where sin increased, because of all these laws that we have, when sin increased, grace increased all the more. This is like, this is really, really good news. So when sin is real heavy, when it feels like there's no way out from underneath it, when it feels like all of life is against you and you're so far away from what God has for you, it says grace increases all the more. So Paul says in death, sin wins. But in life, in Jesus, grace wins. Listen, I, I feel like you may be struggling, right? When we talk about, it's interesting Last week we talked about suffering produces. And I had a lot of people text me or call me this week and talk about suffering and how that's a reality in our lives, right? How we, we have hard things that we have to deal with and tough stuff that we don't necessarily see a way out of or even see how God could work through it. And when we speak about suffering, people get a little encouraged. They say, yeah, we can do this because suffering produces in me, right? And we talk about, really about sin and, and how, how we, we struggle with things, because that's real life. I, I stopped playing at church a long time ago, and I, and I encourage you as many times as I can to stop playing at church now, right? We come to church and we feel like we have to have it all together. We have to feel like we, we've got all the answers and our family is perfect and our hair is all combed over and, and we've got nice pressed clothes on and you don't know what we look like 15 minutes before we came in. 
You don't know what we look like an hour after we get home from church where the kids are maybe in their room and slamming doors and, uh, and maybe you and your, your wife or your husband are just at each other's throats and, and you just feel like life is spiraling out of control. Listen, when sin increased, grace increases all the more. When we struggle, when things are hard, when it feels like we are far away from God, God says, no, you understand, my grace is bigger than all of that. It's bigger than all the stuff that you face. It's bigger than all the stuff that you have to go through. Grace increases all the more. You can't escape your sin. You can't do anything about your sin. But grace can. Jesus can. When it comes to our condition, we are unable to change anything. But when sin increased... Grace increased all the more. And then I think Paul asked probably one of the greatest questions in all of the Bible. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I think this is, this is the craziest question, but so many people live in this reality. Great, God, uh, thanks for grace. So since I know that I'm forgiven... I'm kind of going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to kind of live life by my own rules. Maybe, maybe you've heard it like this. I know I'm not supposed to do this, but God knows my heart. And he, he's, you know, he's already forgiven me because when I got saved, the preacher told me that, that he saved me from my sins in the past, in the present, and in the future. So, so I know I'm not supposed to, but I know that God will forgive me. Right? We've heard this a thousand times. We do it with big stuff. I know I'm not supposed to blank. I know I'm not supposed to live with my boyfriend. But God God will forgive me. I know I'm not supposed to get drunk. Or cheat on my spouse. Or lie to my boss. Or sleep around. Or slack off at work. Or hate this person. I know I'm not supposed to hate them. But God God will forgive me. I know I'm not supposed to run this person in the ground, the struggle that they have. I'm going to tell everybody I can because God, God knows my heart. I'm really just I'm really looking out for this person. I mean, it'll be okay because I'm forgiven. Essentially, what you're saying is, I'm going to live life like I want and make decisions that I want and sin all I want because Jesus is full of grace and His grace will forgive any sin that I commit. Listen, it doesn't work like that, right? It's, that's you trying to manipulate God and God does not play in manipulation. He does not play at your sin game. He does not play at your little, I can do what I want because I'm forgiven. He says, are you really? Because if that's your attitude towards sin, I don't know if you really are forgiven. Church, we talk about things in church circles all the time about you walking out, you pray Jesus into your heart, and that doesn't mean anything. It's about a commitment and a promise that you make to God and about coming underneath His Lordship and really giving your life over to Him. If you haven't given it over, if you're still hanging on, then my question to you is, okay, are you saved? And if you are, why are you still hanging on? Why are you still trying to manipulate certain areas of your life. Why are you saying, I can do what I want because of grace? And Paul comes back along and he says, this is absurdity. He says, chapter, one verse, or chapter 6, verse 1, if, what shall we say then? If we, can we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. 
If we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? This phrase, by no means, literally translates into, be it not. It's kind of formal language. Be it not. It's a qualified affirmative negation. As if the thing that was spoken before it is absurdity. I love the language of the Bible. Paul says very sternly, no. Right? No. We died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? This is, this is craziness. This is this just never, ever will work. This is absurdity at its greatest. And yet every time we turn around, we see people living in this. Every time we approach situations where we can make a choice to do what God says, it may be even hard. Or we can make a choice to say, it's okay, God will forgive me later. We lean into the forgive me later. We'll sin so that grace can increase. It doesn't work like that. It's absurdity. If you are saved, if you have a real, honest, intimate relationship with Jesus, if you understand that He died in your place, and that is He paid the price for your sin, and that He intercedes to the Father for you, and if that's real to you, then you've died to sin. There should be nothing inside of you that wants to go back to that. There should be nothing inside of you that could live that way any longer. Galatians 4.9 says this, But now that you know God, or rather that God knows you, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You've been freed from sin. Don't run back to it. You've been freed from these weak and miserable forces. See, if we looked at our sin that way, we'd be so disgusted with ourselves for having anything to do with it. It's a weak and miserable force. See, what we see is the shiny, polished sin, right? We see what's so attractive and we think, ooh, if I only could do this, or maybe I'll just kind of flirt with this for a little while. It's all nice and pretty in the moment. But when we reflect back on it, we go, that was so stupid. It was so not worth it. That was a weak and miserable force that should have, should have been put away a long time ago. Listen, we have died to sin. Don't run back to it. It's definitely not worth the pain and the consequences that come along. Right? We can all tell stories about that. We can all say, listen, we thought this was what we wanted to do. We thought this is what we always wanted. I knew it was against what God wanted for us, but, but this is what I thought I wanted in the moment. But look how life turned out after the backside of it. Look at all the junk I've got to deal with now because of it. Look at all the people that it's hurt. When I thought it was just about me, when I thought it didn't have anything to do with anybody else. Look at the consequences that accompanied this. It's not worth it. Then on down in chapter 6, verse 12, it says this. kind of gives us all this uh, sin nature and, and how God comes in and, and, and provides righteousness for us. And because of sin and because of now grace that increases over that, can we keep sinning? Can we keep living like that? No way. And he says in verse 12, Therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. 
Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer your parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. He uses an interesting metaphor here. Instruments, right? When I read that, I, I immediately think of things like that's on stage. I think about musical instruments. I think about guitars and drums and all that kind of stuff. I hear instruments of wickedness, and I immediately snap back to the devil went down to Georgia, that little eerie melody, you know, when the, when the bad guys are playing it. Doom, 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 doom. Like, I think of that. I go, that's an instrument of wickedness. It's a bass guitar. Sorry, Jeff. Uh, but it's, it, like, it's, I think of that kind of things. And then when I go instruments of righteousness, I'm all like, fire on the mountain, run, boy, run. And I'm like, I'm so excited about instruments of righteousness. And, and that's not what it means. And so I did a little, little study this week. This, this word instruments is talking about instruments of war. It says, it's the word hoplon. It means any tool or implement used in warfare, a weapon. And so when we read this, he says, don't use your body as a weapon for wickedness. Instead, use your body as a weapon for righteousness. I love that. I love that, that we are to use ourselves to wage war, either with wickedness or righteousness. I had written down in my notes, don't wage war with the enemy, wage war against the enemy. How incredible is that as a, as a goal for our life to say, I'm using my talent, my gift, whatever God has given me, and I'm going to wage war against the enemy. I'm going to use my body as an instrument of righteousness, as a weapon of righteousness against the one who wants to destroy me. I will be used as God. I, I envision like God picking us up and swinging us and saying this is a weapon of righteousness. He's going to speak truth into this situation. She's going to come along and she's going to bring peace into a volatile situation. She's going to be an instrument of war for my sake, not for the enemy's sake. Verse 13 says, Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. This is kind of a remember where you came from statement. I read last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it says this, if you, don't, if you weren't here, if you don't remember. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not a, from yourself, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Do you remember that? Here's how this whole thought starts in Ephesians. It's incredible. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom and the air. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Paul says, don't forget this. You were once dead, and now you're alive. Be an instrument of righteousness. Be a weapon for God because He's brought you from death, from the brink of death, from being useless. He says, now I'm going to use you for righteousness. You are now alive in me. That's an incredible promise. I keep reading. I told you there was two parts. That's the first part. How much time we got left? Oh, we're going to be good. Okay. We have this idea of grace. 
and how grace really changes our attitude towards sin. How when we, when we view what Christ did on the cross, we don't view that as a liberty to continue to live life like we want because we have forgiveness, but we see this as a freedom from that sin. And we can put it aside, we can put it away, and we can come back and we keep saying, this is what God's got for me now. I'm going to be used for Him now. I'm going to be used as a weapon of righteousness now. And then Paul, I think, gives us what is probably the, the truest and most honest passage that he ever wrote down. And I think it's something that we struggle with because we understand grace and we understand ourselves. And if you're like me, you can kind of sit back and go, listen, there's nothing good in me. Like, I'm, I'm so unworthy. I don't understand how grace can make me be worthy to be used by God. And, and Paul writes out this struggle for us. Chapter 7, verse 15. Probably our mantra for most of our life. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Many of us have been there, right? God, I don't know why I keep doing this. I don't know why I keep making these same stupid mistakes. I don't, well, I don't know why, if we're going to use these kind of language, why do I keep running back to death when I know that I have life? God, I don't know why. I don't understand why I do what I do. And it keeps going, verse 17. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's the sin living in me that does it. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I, I, I just read this. I, I read it over and over. And I know if you're reading through it and you try to read quickly through it, you get real confused. There's a lot of, I do not do what I do and, and do, do what I don't want to do and all this kind of language. But when you just take the second, just to read honestly what Paul's saying, he's saying all this stuff that I want to do, I just can't seem to do it. But all this junk that I know that I'm not supposed to do, I keep running back to that. And he says in a moment of honesty, I, there's nothing good in me. I don't understand why I keep doing this. And he comes to this point where he says, what a wretched man I am. What a, what a piece of junk I am. Who can save me from this, this awful cycle that I just keep finding myself in over and over and over and over again? He goes, thanks God. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ. I can't do this on my own. I can't live this life for Him on my own. God, I keep, I keep running from you instead of running to you. I don't get it. And I think, I really, really believe that's the struggle that we're in. I believe that of the 250, 300 people who are here on an every week basis, we sit around and we go, listen, we know what God has for us. 
We understand what grace is. We understand what Jesus did on the cross. We get it all. But like there's this thing inside me that I just can't seem to beat. That I just can't seem to overcome. That, that this, if I were going to be spiritual about it, I would say this is my thorn in my flesh, right? This, this is the one thing that I just can't seem to get over. This habitual sin. And it could be anything. It could be anything. We have all these different vices in our life, right? All these little things that take control over us when, when we should not allow them to. But we just can't seem to figure out why. What the root of it is. And Paul says right here, listen, this is our sin nature. Let's go back to Adam. He had one job. He had one don't do. And he did it. And so now we're opened up to all this other stuff and all this sin that just kind of just overtakes us and swamps us. And we sit back and we go, I don't understand why. I, I, I don't understand why I keep going back to this. And, and God's saying, well, it's because your sin nature. You've got to let me reign in your body. You've got to let me take control of all of this. You've got to let me be the boss. See, it's bigger than just praying a prayer and walking an aisle. It's a commitment. I talked to the two people I talked to this morning about Father Abraham. I know you're going, why are you talking about Father Abraham when you talk about salvation? Remember, Abraham has given this incredible promise by God. And he says, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. You, you will have kings come from you. And he gave him this incredible promise long before he ever even had Isaac, right? And then what we see is God fulfills that promise. He says, you're, you're going to be my people and I will be your God. This covenant language is so important. And, and so he makes this promise with Abraham. And generations later, we get all the way down to Moses, Right? part the Red Sea, we lead the people out into the wilderness, and for 40 years, we're just making circles in the desert. And over and over and over again, God's like, I'm just going to kill them all. They're totally turning their back on me. They do not understand what I'm trying to do. They are totally against who I am. And Moses comes back to God time and time again and says, no, no, no. Remember your promise to Abraham? We are your people. Remember your promise, God. Fulfill, and, and God says, you're right. Because when I make a promise, I keep it forever. And I was telling these, these folks who got saved this morning, I said, I said, this is what we're doing. This is not a prayer that's some kind of magical prayer. This is a promise that you're making to God to say, I am yours and you are mine. And everything I have will become underneath your leadership. Everything that I am comes underneath. Thank you for forgiving me and coming into my life and saving me. But God, it's more than just saving me. It's, God, let me be used by you. Let me come underneath your leadership. Let me let, me let this be a lifelong promise to you. God makes these incredible promises to us. He says, listen, I, I can use you. And we go, no, you can't. Because look, I've got all this junk that I carry around. I've got all this stuff that I can't seem to beat. I keep running back to it. I don't understand why I do. And this is, this is like, this is Bible 101, right? Because we feel like that we're so unworthy to be used by God. 
And we, we understand that, that, yes, we're saved. And we understand, yes, that grace comes in. But we have this thing that keeps us from being really used by God, that God could ever really love us completely because of this thing. And we get it all twisted up. And then Paul answers the question in 8.1. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Listen, there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So when we, we feel this struggle and this battle that Paul so honestly wrote out for us, going, I don't understand why I keep going back and forth. I don't understand why I do this stuff that I'm not supposed to do. And, you, and we convince ourselves, because of that thing, God could never really fully love me. And Paul comes back and says, no, no, you don't understand. There's no condemnation in Christ. There's no, there's no pointing and accusing finger saying that you're not worthy. Or that you're not worth my time or my energy or my effort or my love or my grace or my forgiveness or my mercy. There's none of that in Christ. He says, in Christ the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Jesus didn't come to earth to point a finger at you and say that you're an awful, horrible sinner. He came to save you. And He came to show you what life and forgiveness and mercy and grace really, really looks like. There's a big difference between conviction and condemnation, right? Condemnation is from the enemy. He says that you're not worthy because you've done this. But you are your sin. Conviction is God coming into your life saying, Hey, here's this sin. You need to work on this. You need to get rid of this. Learn to love. Learn to, learn to rise above this. Learn to put this away and let me handle it. That's conviction. Condemnation is, see this sin? It's who you are. You are just that awful of a person. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. And Paul says so beautifully here that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus said it himself. John 3.17, we all know 3.16, right? 3.17, the verse right after that says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He's not here. He doesn't show up in your life to go, you're awful. You're horrible. How could I ever love you? He comes in and says, listen, I'm going to love you anyway, but let's get rid of this stuff. Let's get rid of all this junk that you keep running back to. Listen, if you're, if you're the Paul, if you're saying, I don't understand why I keep running back to it, God says, listen, let me take it and stop running. Stop running back to that junk that you're trying to leave behind because you're trying to do it your own. Let me take it. Let me have it. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you from it. See, we, we get this all so messed up. We understand grace and we understand forgiveness. We understand how God comes in and gives us righteousness. And we say, but we're not worthy of it. We, don't, we can't grab onto this because of all this stuff that we do that we run back that we don't know why we do it. And God says, let me just have it. Let me take it. Let me let you live this life that you're destined to live in me. And let's leave all this other stuff behind. Listen, church. This takes a lifetime to learn. 
This is not something that's just, oh, good sermon, Matt. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this stuff behind. I'm going to just, full. It's just, this is a daily thing. You're going to wake up tomorrow morning, and it's going to be a Monday. And you're going to go, wow, I don't feel any different than I did yesterday. But God, I'm going to live in your grace today. And I'm not going to run back to stuff. I'm, I'm giving that over to you. And you may do great. You may do great for months. And then you may fall. You may slip up. And it may be a while until you come back to this again. You may wallow in that sin. You know, that's what we do. We sin and we go, oh gosh, well since I've already done that, I can keep doing this. You may wallow in this for a while. Some of y'all are still wallowing. And all the while, he's saying, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm, I'm here to save you. Let's get out of this junk. Let's get out of this mess. Some of you are in this back and forth that Paul was in. Why do I not do the things that I want to? Why do I keep doing these things that I'm not supposed to? We've got we to gotta take a step out of the equation and say, God, this is where you come in. I can't do this on my own. I can't, I can't be good enough. I can't pull myself out of this. I can't keep doing all this, God. This is something I need you to come in and, and save me from. We have this back and forth pull, and the Scripture keeps telling us over and over again, this is our sin nature. And God comes in and says, let me, let me take over that sin nature. Let me save you from that. Let me fully take over grace reigning in righteousness using your bodies as an instrument of war understanding your sinful nature and living in the freedom of grace and not in the shame of condemnation listen these are lifetime lessons and Paul just throws them all at you over the course of three chapters and you read 5, 6, 7, and 8, and you just go, I can't, I can't even begin to grab on to all this. And God says, let me help you live it out. Listen, church. I feel like if we're going to be honest with each other, we are where Paul is. We are in this constant struggle between the things that we know we're supposed to do and the things that we keep running back to. We understand grace. We understand those preceding passages. We get it. But there's this, this war that's raging. And I don't know. I, I don't know if you can be honest enough with yourself. I think about the guys who write these letters and these books of the Bible. How, how transparent they have to be. For Paul to write that statement is pretty, that's a heavy thing. Can you imagine being that transparent with your spouse? Can you imagine being that transparent with a close friend? And say, listen, there's some struggles that I've got. I don't understand why I'm even struggling with it, but I need, I need you to help me with this. I need some support. I need you to pray with me. Will you check on me? That's, that's honesty. But here's the problem. A lot of us can't be that honest with God. 
We think that we're full in Him on some level. Like, oh no, I'm not really struggling with that, God. And He's going, yes, you are. Like, I know you are. Could you just be that transparent this morning? Could you just be that honest with Him? Saying, God, I don't know why I keep going back and forth between the two of these things, but I understand grace and thank you, Jesus, for your grace. But I just need some help. I need you to come in and step in and maybe take over some areas of my life because I'm failing. I feel like a wretched man. God, can you come in and take over? Would you be honest enough this morning to have that conversation? Would you be honest enough this morning just to open yourself up to the reality that God has for you? Hey, this is Matt Overall, the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 10.30. Our small groups start at 9.30. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.